Hey everybody, welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. My name is Brian Sobolewski, and I've been your host as I have walked you through the five-year period that my father, brother, and I took down jewelry stores all over New England. Season 2 has been the aftermath, and welcome to episode 11, Summer of Discontent. But first, a suggestion. I would like to suggest an audience participation episode where you guys uh, flock to your favorite social media site and look up the Family Jewels podcast. While you're there, you can give it a like or a follow. And shoot me a question. Any question that you might have for uh, me, my dad, or my sister. I'll throw my sister in there too. So any questions you guys have, shoot me it, and uh, I will compile questions over the next couple of episodes, and I'll try to remind you every episode from here on out to um, to get on there with your questions. And once I get a, a decent enough questions, I'll call Dad. I will ask him the questions interview style. And then post-interview, I'll be able to comment on every, every answer that he gave you guys. So be creative. Ask anything you want. And as long as... I don't think he'll answer it stupidly or it won't go where you think it's going to go. Have as much fun as you would like. Be creative. So that is my proposal for a maybe a season ender. Um, but we still have tons of content to get to. And we're going to pick up right where we left off. Where me getting out on bail. Uh, my grandmother put up uh, the 25000 cash surety for me to get out. I got out uh, pretty late at night. I didn't get out till like 9 p.m. And when I did, they told me that I would have to report to probation the next morning. So I did that. And I got to tell you that there's an entire entity in the justice system devoted to what they call probation. And parole is much different from probation. So the distinction between the two is parole is a parole officer potentially has more power than any police officer out there. And the reason I say that is because they have the power to arrest you on site if they find that you are in violation of your parole. And he can drive you back to prison that night. You can find your ass right back there if, if your parole officer decides he comes home and you are a spool over person instead of a spool under person on your toilet paper. And that's a violation of a condition in your parole and you're out of there. Now, this is this is a power that might come in handy. Like you find a, a pedophile hanging out by a school as a parole officer. Well, you know, let's bundle that guy up and take him back to prison. But, you know, it's, it was a lot of guys, I'll tell you the hardest cons will, will, won't go out on parole. Because, you know, they're like, you can take my freedom for the time I'm behind the wall, but when I get out, leave me alone. And my brother was that guy. And we will get to that as we continue through this story. But there is a big distinction against the guy, between the guy that's like, no, I don't want your parole. I want to rap. That's what we would call it. Oh, no, I'm just going to rap. So you'd sit in front of the parole board and be like, I don't want to see you guys. I'm just going to rap, which means you're just going to do your sentence. And you don't want to go out on parole and do this revolving door thing back and forth because then you end up coming back you're in for six or seven months before you see the parole board again and they may deny you or let you out again and it's all these question marks and some guys will just say screw it but um the probation department is very different in that it serves no purpose whatsoever meaning there was one aspect of it that I see could could be helpful in that every single week you have to bring in a fresh piece of mail with your current address on it and it has to be the same where you have to explain the move. So 
in that it keeps you centrally located in a spot is okay, but beyond that, it does nothing. It does nothing. So I don't know if if this particular, knowing where you are the a week ago when you came into your probation appointment and showed me a letter that was current, meaning I can't show up every week with the same letter. It has to be a different letter and it can't be a credit card uh, offer. It has to be something uh, legitimate utility. So I get that they're nailing you down to your address, but beyond that, you still have a seven day span where you can pretty much escape anything. Like, like I'm, I don't know how that is helping them because in the grand scheme of things, if they want to find you, they find you. And beyond that, law is the most patient, patient, patient of all things. <laughs> I remember me, my, my dad often talks about a guy and he might have in some of the calls that we did in season one that got picked up after he walked out of a minimum security prison living in Florida for 19 years and my he was one of my dad's cellmates uh big 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 guy crazy big and um they lugged his ass back to Massachusetts and made him do the rest of his sentence after nine years of being on the run and then they tagged on five years for escaping <laughs> it just you know it doesn't pay it just doesn't pay so the whole probation thing, you know, I show up the next morning to this probation guy and he basically is, he's a douche, uh, underpaid, uh, hyper, uh, cynical, hyper, uh, suspicious, like this dude's paranoid. And, the, and there's a, a degree of that in all of the people that I come across from here on out, the court people, the, the guards, everybody. There's a degree of paranoia, and rightfully so, but that paranoia never serves to help them prevent anything that they're paranoid about. I can tell you that. My concern after sitting with this douchebag and him telling me that every single day that I'm out on bail, I need to call the office and check in. And I don't know what that means other than, you know, calling there and saying, hi, this is Brian. I'm alive. <laughs> Goodbye. I mean, that, that's essentially what it ended up being to the point that I just stopped doing it. Like, it, it was like nobody nobody was really out my ass this time that, that I was out. And I was I was figuring that this is time that I'm out that if I don't show up for my court appearances, you guys get $25,000. So uh, I'm almost paying to be out. And no, I'm not, I'm not agreeing to this silly check-in every day bullshit. My next stop is Brookside Hospital. Brookside Hospital because I want to get on the schedule again and start working. I mean, you know, I knew I was going to have a conversation with Mark before I started working again, but um, I was expecting to work again. And, I, you know, there's an underlying thread to this episode of the deep denial that I was in this entire summer. It's the, the summer of discontent because I maintained a, a stunning level of denial throughout this whole time. Number one, at no point did I think I was going to prison. At no point had what I'd gone through, and maybe maybe that was self-protective, maybe what I had gone through was so traumatizing. Cambridge wasn't that bad. Uh, Valley Street wasn't that bad. Um, but in all of those places, like I've said in other podcasts, you will scare anyone that is doing pre-trial time to death when you say the word upstate. You're going upstate. 
dude, you don't want to go upstate. Is there any way that you can get a sentence that's lower than three years? Because then you won't be upstate. Don't go upstate. You don't want to go upstate. You don't want to go behind the wall. You don't want to go behind the wall. Oh, no, upstate shit. Seriously, it, it will inject you with dread, not fill you with dread. It's like an injection that's it, it's that invasive in, in the way that it feels when you hear it. And as I sit here now in hindsight and think about the level of denial that I maintained for the three months that I was out, four months that I was out, stunning. And I was still on the edge of this life because, you know, I, I was pretty set that I was going to be able to graduate. Now, this was this was another huge thing for me. I was graduating with an associate in science, but um, on bail, I went to, I joined Phi Theta Kappa. <laughs> I might be the only Phi Theta Kappa member that joined and was oriented to Phi Theta Kappa, which is an honor society, because I my grades were outrageous. <laughs> I was on the president's list, and I wasn't even trying. That I'm not bragging about that, but this is just how much my brain just clicked onto this stuff, and uh, how good at it I was, and how much I just regret the fact that I, I can't do it anymore. And to some extent, there is so much psychology in what I do now, but not not what I wanted to do then. So, uh, yeah, joining Phi Theta Kappa with pending felony charges. Booyah. <laughs> That's me. There's no nobody else. Nobody else. Sorry. I, I, I wish I still had... Uh, there was a pinning ceremony I went to on bail. And um, this is... I'm sorry, Phi Theta Kappa. Uh, I, don't, I hope I don't sully your uh, gleaming reputation as an honor society. But uh, I'm sorry. There's, if you look at the list of Phi Theta Kappa members... Uh, there's probably 18 felons on there. Don't even go there. So at, at no point did I think I was going to prison. I'm a five theta kappa. Throw that at the judge when he wants to sentence me to prison and show him that, you know, I did so good in school and that I'm a drug counselor and that I help people. How do you put that kind of person into prison? There was logic in it. But let me let me go over the charges again. Armed robbery, conspiracy to commit armed robbery. Um larceny over 250 conspiracy to commit larceny over 250 we had robbery through confinement and conspiracy to do that and then we had kidnapping and conspiracy to do that all of those sentences minus the larceny carried a sentence of three years to life three years to life that's how much discretion the judge would have and that's how much ability he had to sit down and say, okay, here's the situation. This is These people are bad. Let's throw them away for life because they keep doing this. Or, hey, these people have gotten a bad situation. And so there was discretion. But at the same time, the minimum guideline made sure that you were going upstate. I didn't know the minimum guidelines yet. So the, they certainly didn't, you know, curtail the skyrocketing level of denial that I was about to reach. But um, it was staggering to see to see those guidelines. And every every crime has a sentencing guideline like that. Like, here's the minimum and here's the max. A, so you don't have judges giving you life for jaywalking. And B, so that um, there's, there's some order to it, I guess. So my logic of, hey, look at how good I'm doing. How could you possibly send me away? And look at all the shit bags that I had just left in those prisons. I was like, I was, and I'm like, none of those people. Um, you can't send me away. Well, 
here we are. Here we are. Now, I am on my way to Brookside to get my job. So I get to Brookside and uh, Mark, who is my boss, and uh, I want to kind of use Mark and Marcel to give you the, the difference, the dichotomy between how two people handled what had just happened. So, and you got a little bit of, you know, obviously I graduated and I, I graduated, walked, I walked, I grabbed, my mother was beaming. My mother was so proud. It was such a great day to graduate from New Hampshire Technical Institute with a associate's degree in science with a ma uh, major in alcohol and drug abuse counseling. Yeah, I'm bragging. So, I didn't want to... Um, when I got to Brookside, Mark meets me just outside the cafeteria, which was the first major kind of thing in the hospital you hit before you start down hallways to get to specific units. So it was almost like a blockade. So that's the first, you know, kind of paying like, uh-oh. We sit down, he gives me some speech about being worried about me and, hey, how did everything go? And tell me what's going on. And I'm just like, oh, it's all bullshit and none, none of it's true and I'm trying to get it cleared up and I finally got out on bail and got reduced because of this and that. So I gave him a runaround still kind of maintaining that I was innocent and I had no idea what was going on. You know what I mean? And and that just doesn't, that didn't fly day two of this whole thing going down. Finally, he brings me onto the unit that I worked on, and he brings me into what was the uh, what was the middle of a staff meeting. So the woman that I worked for, Patty, was sitting there. Um, Donna was there. You know, everybody on that worked on the unit is there. And I walk in and I sit down. And, and Cheryl was there too. Because so, don't forget about Cheryl, <laughs> the girl that I started seeing after Dawn, because she she plays a role in some of this too. They're all sitting there, and of course they're not going to continue a staff meeting while there is a <laughs> felon in the room. But um, it just was so, it was just so weird. It was so, I don't know, like it was like being inside of static cling, if that's, if that's a description at all. And it was short-lived because then Mark pulls me out of that staff meeting and then pulls me into HR, and HR hands me a check and says, hey, sorry, we can't have somebody working here facing felony charges in another state so sorry uh kiss my ass essentially is how that went down and they owed me nothing it wasn't like i lived i was there for 30 years and even if i was for 30 years i would have expected the same thing only a bigger check i didn't even expect a severance check it's like 150 bucks i don't even know where they got that from or why there was a severance the reason why you have a part-time worker is so you can cut their cut your losses with them whenever the hell you want without having to hand out a check it was just a punch in the face. It was a punch in the face because all of my eggs were in that basket. And that basket just disappeared. So there was no reason for me to stay sober. And I didn't. So I relapsed for about two weeks. And this is in the middle of me starting. Like I jumped into probably the first month of the semester. The last semester that we were going through before we graduated. Which is the toughest semester of all. That you have to be at the peak of your internship. And we had these meetings where you sat in front of the two directors of, you sat in front of Marcel and you sat in front of Tom Matei and they just grilled you about your internship experience. And it was like a three hour class. And when you got on the hot seat, they, it was like, it was like, 
um, basic training. It was that hard, it, and they got into your head. And what was so so cool about it was neither one of them came near me. I mean, they tried to poke and prod me a little bit, but they knew I was on point. They knew I was doing decent work based on the fact that the place had hired me and Mark, Mark had liked me before he stabbed me right in the fucking dick. And sorry, still a little resentful for that. I mean, just tell me that I'm not coming back on the phone. I don't want to have to come to Brookside. I don't want to have to sit in front of all the people that I work for what before you send me to the executioner it was a shit move i'm gonna telegraph that right now as opposed to marcel who welcomed me with open arms and wanted me to graduate and was happy for me meaning you know what he's no idiot this guy has been in front of front of a thousand people tougher or or in different same circumstances as me and you know he could have taken a different route. He could have taken the Mark route. They could have booted me out and should have for their reputation, but didn't. They stuck by me, and that means the world to me. And so did certain people from Bookside, like Patty, but I, don't I wouldn't cross a room to spit on Mark's head if it was on fire right now. And I hope he's listening to Rhode Island piece of shit. <laughs> Not, nothing against Rhode Island. So I lose that job. I relapse. I get my shit straightened out again after two weeks of partying my brains out. And I'm not even going to go into detail about that because this isn't an AA meeting. And I send my resume over to Seaborn Hospital in Dover, New Hampshire. And if you've never been to Dover, New Hampshire, it's gorgeous. And the, it's a little bit tainted by the fact that it's right next to Durham, which is where UNH is, which I'm sure is full of a bunch of white kids that are obnoxiously drinking. I went to UNH for two semesters, non-matriculating. I, I was a boarder in one of their frat houses, and it was just, whew, <laughs> there's a time and place for everything, and it's called college. But um, other than that, Dover's gorgeous. It's very, it's it's almost a little between, um, it's like a Portsmouth without the, the market. You know, without the fanfare. I mean, Portsmouth is growing, but... um, And I, I always loved Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And Dover is a little bit old-worldy. You can almost see this is an old coastal town. And in that town, they had a monstrosity of a hospital. I mean, picture the Capitol building. Um, you know, a big center structure with multiple hauled structures branching from it. And it was huge, and it was right on this estuary. This It looked more like a river than it, and it was taking you out to sea than it looked like beach or some, or anything like that. And it housed multiple units. And, and a lot of the students from the tech that I had come from did their internships at Seaborn Hospital. And this is how I knew about it. So I send along my resume, and I get a call. Hey, we're looking for somebody to fill in some part-time shifts, which basically meant that you went in with a part-time status, but you could get full-time hours as much as you want because there were always hours around. So if the census shot up unexpectedly, meaning there were more patients for some reason, they were just taking a ton of them in, um, you could get more hours. So I took everything that I could uh, once they hired me, and I was shocked to get this job. And I want to tell you something. This was Marcel. And he's never admitted it to me, and he's never said that he lent a hand in this, but I, I, there's no way my resume just got in amongst the, mon the tons that they must have had. And even, even if it did, that first interview, I'm sure I put him as a reference or it said that it was the tech in there. And he was very, very tight with the, the woman that ran 
at the adolescent unit. There's a stark difference between the adolescent unit and the um, adult unit. But a couple of weeks working there, out on bail, boom, I got a job working on both. And I was good with both sides. I don't know, man, this, this was my magic. This is, this is the kind of thing that, although, uh, you know, after listening to this podcast for as, as long as you have, if you have, you know, I'm not, I don't have a lot of faith. I'm not a religious person, but, but there are things that I know that I can do that other people can't that I know that's why God put me here and that's how I know there is a God. So, uh, you know, beyond that, I'm not religious in any way, shape, or form, but what I do with human bodies in fitness right now, this the, the reason I'm not dead, like some of my friends, like like my buddy Richie and my buddy Dwayne, both down. I mean, they, I shouldn't be here, and they should. And the only reason I'm here is because of what I can do there. And and the other place was was on on a drug unit. Not only as somebody that knows what it was like to suffer, and I was two weeks sober. Jeez, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You shouldn't say that. You should be sober as you do this job. But I wasn't. I was going through a lot of shit. So uh, a couple of weeks working there, and and they hire me. And uh, again, I'm cruising on denial. I met this guy, Richie different Richie from the one I just mentioned. And this guy, this guy was, he had the last version of the mullet and, uh, <laughs> he was this fat dude, but they had this beautiful indoor heated pool. So after we did our shift, so we worked three to like 1130 and by 12, we would go downstairs, we'd set up the volleyball unit, we'd play vo water, water volleyball for hours. It was a blast, me and that guy. There was a girl there named Zena. Oh, Zena, I think. Yeah, because I looked her up in the phone book and I gave her a call and I hung up. I was so nervous. And she ended up calling back because it was the first, it was the first, you know, uh, caller ID had just come out. So she could she could ring me back. And she ended up talking to my mom for like 10 minutes. And all, I'm, all of this is, you know, while I am facing felony charges in Massachusetts. See how this is not only the summer of discontent, but just a major. It's discontent because of the major denial. I'm skating towards a big fucking letdown. Now, let's get into the, the fun. Um, working at C1 Hospital was amazing. There was just so many parts of it that allowed me to feel what normal life would be like, while at the same time, uh, oof, just driving home or going facing reality or getting a phone call from my lawyer that... And here it comes. The prosecution wants me to be in lineups. Okay, so when I come back, I'm going to play a little Marshall. And uh, we're going to talk about the lineups that Bri was in. Two seconds, guys. Okay, commercial's over. Welcome back. Um, so, like uh, the cliffhanger I left you on, Attorney Henry Katz calls me one morning and says, yeah, Bri, I need you to come down to the courthouse on Thursday and I need you to partake <laughs> or be in a lineup. And I was like, what? He's like, yes, apparently they want to charge you with the Littleton robbery. And so all of the charges that I mentioned before were for Burlington, were for Nancy. The only thing they could charge me with and the route that they were taking. No, so understand, Nancy's giving them, hey, Bri was involved in all of them, or as many as I was. But they only can really 
um, charge me with the ones that she can go on the stand and say, I was there. She can't go on the stand and say, I heard that he was there. Because Jesus, you could put anybody away that way. So the only charges that I was facing right now that the grand jury says, yes, I will let you charge him with that and investigate that was because Nancy got on the on the stand and said, yes, I was there with Brian and I saw him there. So it was like an eyewitness testimony. She was facing the same crime. So it's kind of fits neatly in a little bow. So from there, they suspected that I was involved in as many. And so just to back up a little bit, dad was charged when he eventually comes down to Massachusetts with six armed robberies of the 22. And Kev was charged with four. Along with all of the things that you tag along with that. So just so everybody knows the reason Kevin has Chapman and the reason why I paid the New Hampshire lawyer and the reason why eventually we're going to have to give money to the Massachusetts lawyer for dad was to go through and try to find a reasonable plea agreement for the number of charges that everybody was facing. Now I'm facing charges for one robbery, but they know I've done them all. So Henry Katz calls me and says, hey, Bri, you need to be part of a lineup. Ended up being two lineups. But the first one that he called me for was for Littleton. And uh, a lot of things saved my ass for not getting picked out for that robbery. One was the month before, and I think I said this in the episode, and I might not have, but here's a little bit of detail from that episode, from the Littleton robbery episode. My, bro- my, my father and I and Bill planned that whole robbery in the kiddie pool of a, a Puerto Vallarta all-inclusive <laughs> resort. And I, so, yes, it was definitely in the episode. I'm sure I said that in the episode. But I, if you go to an all-inclusive resort, ladies and gentlemen, please never go without a girlfriend because there's nothing to do. And I was there with my dad. We didn't share a room. Ugh. But um, I got Montezuma's Revenge the first day from taking a shower. So it's crazy. And it's basically just eating buffet style on the, you know, on the resort the whole time. Step off the resort. You're in a third world country. You're going to get shot. Literally stepping off the property line I'm talking about. That's how close it is. I'm not talking about, you know, a couple blocks away. And I was tan as F. Now, why every once in a while I say the word fuck and sometimes I say the word F, I couldn't tell you, but I mark all of these as explicit. So let's do this. <laughs> I was tan as fuck. I was so tan. <laughs> and again, I think I mentioned in the last episode that at some point I'm going to do a whole episode on my bodybuilding lifestyle that I, I took on post prison. I was a bodybuilder for a couple of years. I, you know, I always sort of stuck my foot into it whenever I wanted to, I don't know. I don't know what the hell I was doing on that stage with other men in bikini bottoms flexing. <sighs> so, um, so the entire time that I was down at Puerto Vallada, I wore these little tiny bodybuilding underwear, laying with no sunscreen in the Mexican sun. So if you ever do see a picture of me and you see all the little freckles that I have all over my body, that's from the absolute callousness with which we uh, took your warning of the ozone being depleted in the 80s. We said, hey, throw some baby oil on that and let's lay in some sun. (laughs) 
So I was very tan, and I'm going to ask. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say right now that I'm pretty sure my mullet saved my ass in that lineup because I just told you that uh, I shaved my head. So uh, I had shaved my head after my dad was um, arrested, and I kept my head shaved pretty regularly throughout this whole thing. I did not have long hair again until I was either in prison or had left prison. So I kept my hair really, really short this entire time. After shaving my head, I had I kept it short the entire time and up until the day I went into that lineup. And so I was tan with a mullet. And when I went into that lineup, I had a shaved head and was pale as the noonday sun. Now, after you get a phone call from your lawyer saying, hey, it's possible that a whole nother charge is coming your way, which means you are facing whatever you're facing now, plus at least double that. It, it's very nerve-wracking. So I wish I, could, I wish I could come up with a hook or a, a thread of a way to describe what it is like to be in a police lineup with you guys, but I guess the only way to really do this is the way that I've done all of these things is to just give you the details straight up and straightforward. I had no idea what I was walking into. None whatsoever. My lawyer didn't give me, you know, a heads up of, hey, you're going to go in and this is where they're going to do it. I thought I was going to be behind glass. The entire time I thought I was going to be like I had seen in all of the movies. The other thing that was weighing on my head that I got no, you know, uh, the only thing I could reference was all of the movies that I've ever seen. And in Running Scared, which was Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal, old, old movie about them being cops, they did a lineup with a guy and it was four cops and this dude, and he was number five. Flash forward to Seinfeld. When uh, Kramer is in a lineup, he's number five. There's a couple of movies I wrote down in a notebook one day because I always want to keep referencing the movies that I see lineups in, and every single one of them, or the majority of the lineup movies that I see, the guilty person is always number five. So there's... I'm thinking, I'm going into this lineup, I'm going to be in front of somebody, and I'm going to be in front of glass, they're going to be behind it, and they're going to point me out, so the only thing that I want to make sure of is that I don't look the same as that I did during the proposed time they're saying I was there, and I was, and I didn't. I changed my appearance enough that I think this saved my ass, and number two is don't be number five. Don't be number five. Don't be number five. I show up to the courthouse that morning. I go up into the cafeteria to meet Mr. Katz, who again is just a slob. He's just a slob of a guy. And he says, okay, we're going upstairs to the lineup. You're going to go in. You're going to be in the lineup. The guy's going to come walk back and forth again. So he's not painting the scene. He's not telling me where it's going to be. I'm still thinking that I'm going over to this private room with center blocks with a one-way mirror. Not the case, man. When we walk up, we walk into a regular courtroom. And this is where I said uh, a while ago that you will hear about me being in a jury box again because I was going to stand in the jury box with the other people from the lineup as the victim of this crime was brought through the courtroom back and forth through the lineup and he was allowed to look at anybody he wanted to. Um, and then he would be ushered out the door. Now... I go into this room. Howard Weiss is there. 
they are filming this. There were two different cameras on us, multiple people like assistants and stuff. Henry walks in, my, my lawyer, and he directs me over to the jury box. I go over to the jury box and there's a line of guys all wearing a t-shirt and whatever pants they had on. So everybody was given a white t-shirt to wear. Everybody had a buzz cut. So they were all cops, but I'm not saying that I was in a lineup with uniformed police officers, but I was in a lineup with four other cops and a homeless guy. I didn't know that the homeless guy was there until we all were set in position, but as we were walking, there was a line. So as I left Henry's side, I walked to the, where he pointed me to. I got in this line with guys that were taking off their shirts and putting on white shirts, and I was directed to do the same. And then I, as I was walking into the jury box, they were handing out numbers, and guess what fucking number I get? Five. My God, do you understand what that did to me? Like, I was trying to be as calm as possible during this whole process because there are many unanswered questions in this whole in this whole thing. Meaning, do I look at him? Do I try to avert my eyes from him? Um, you know, what is my body language? Should I look? Should I stand at attention? Should I try not to look obvious? Should I look like I don't give a fuck? Like, there's so many things that you're thinking to yourself is, there's just one little thing that I could do to not get picked. Understand what getting picked means means twice the amount of years I have to worry about my asshole, essentially, is what's going on for me in this jury box. Number five, I move to the edge. Number six is in front of me. I get to the end of the jury box, and I notice that two of the cops, one of them is standing on two phone books. The other one is standing on one phone book to match my height. And the homeless guy is at the end, not even in the jury box, just holding number one mocking the fuck out of me, I guess. And he's kind of drunk. and he, you know, I don't even know what they paid him to be there, but I guess he's like the he's like the, um, the control group <laughs> of any study. My God, the absolute craziness that that I was feeling that was going on at the time is 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 probably the reason why I will die younger than I should. And the reason why my hair is going to go stark white in a year or two is because this moment right now in time that I am standing in a jury box holding the number five that I never wanted to hold uh, with four other cops and a homeless guy. This isn't good. Also, keep in mind what I said is that all of this is a waiting game. So now I am standing in that jury box waiting and waiting and waiting playing over again and again in my head what do I do when he walks in if he stands in front of me do I look at him do I make eye contact do I avoid eye contact do I smile do I nod do I point to the dude next to me wow a hush falls over the room we're about to bring the guy in it's I hear somebody say cameras go on I see the red lights go on both cameras immediately I can tell in my periphery that number six and number four tensed to attention and I did the same exact thing a couple other uh, either four hours went by or two seconds and the door opens and in walks Maurice I hadn't seen him since looked the same I might have been wearing the same suit I don't know but again all I am seeing is him in my periphery and I'm expecting him it could have been Kermit the Frog 
but I'm expecting Maurice. I know who's coming in. And he walks kind of in a wide arc down and Howard Weiss meets him and has a little conversation with him. It looks like, again, I'm not looking over to him because you know what? Neither is six and four. So I'm going by what the two dudes on either side of me are doing because I'm guessing this isn't their first rodeo. Maurice comes down the line and stops between me and six. I'm looking straight ahead. Uh, I can feel a little bit of sweat beating on the side of my head. I am geeking out, trying to keep shallow breaths, eyes forward. So when eyes are forward, in fluorescent lighting, staring into a, a eggshell white wall, things start to get a little blurry and start to get a little fucked up. So I'm thinking, man, please don't pass out. Maurice skirts out the room fast. Like he shuffles out. And so I'm like, I'm done. I'm done for. This is it. it this is now I'm, I'm facing uh, double the charges. And a couple minutes go by and I'm wondering, I'm wondering, I'm wondering. And then suddenly, I'm, and I'm like, hey, Howard, my lawyer, you want to get up and find out what the fuck is going on? <laughs> He's sitting over in the back. I think he was on his goddamn phone. Suddenly, Howard Weiss, the assistant attorney, attorney general, says, hey, he's coming through for another pass. What? Come on, man. There has to be a part of this that is cruel and unusual punishment to me. Give me a fucking break. So here it comes. It's almost the same exact thing. He comes in, wide arc, comes in close, walks among every single person, stops between me and six, shuffles his ass out. Okay. It's over. I am instructed to go down into the cafeteria where Howard will come down, my, my lawyer, uh, Henry, will come down and uh, let me know what's up. And oof, that was a, a disgusting cup of coffee. I sat there just on, on fucking pins and needles. And my lawyer comes down and sits down and you just wait just open your fucking mouth and start forming words asshole shuffles around in his in his bag and pulls out a sheet of paper and puts it in front of me and I'm like I gotta read this just tell me and I look down at it and it says that according to uh, the attorney uh, the, the attorney general's office the person um, that was picked out by the victim of that robbery was number six. <laughs> and this is the only reason why I will give Mr. Uh, Henry Katz any props is because it is rumored that he went up to uh, the guy that was number six, the state police officer, and gave him his card and says, hey, you might need to come up with some alibis. Like he was just being a total smart ass. Almost like a better call Saul maneuver, but so, I can tell you, first lineup passed. Whew. Um, now, let's start talking about the second. But before that, let's talk about some of the things that I did that summer that I think my brain wanted to do before it knew it was facing the inevitable end. My brain was nice enough to take me to Weir's Beach. It was actually me and the buddy that tossed a bunch of jewelry uh, uh, or the buddy that tossed a bunch of jewelry for me. Uh, me and him went up to Wears Beach one day, spent the day on the water slides, just having a blast. 
you know, my brain took me to the Salem Willows, my brain took me to Hampton Beach, my brain took me into Boston, my brain just made every single day uh, a feast for the eyes and the soul as I was, and, and I was on high, man, I don't know if any of you have ever done a, a state police lineup in a Superior County Courthouse and passed it, like, like, you know, <laughs> got out of it. It is extremely, it's an extremely rewarding experience. Because first of all, um, I have to get out um, and start enjoying my life as much as possible because of the amount of years that being in the lineup took off my life. Trust me, the amount of stress that that only... I don't know. I can't. I don't know that I can make a difference between what it would be like to be innocent in that lineup and guilty in that lineup because, geez, both sound like an absolute shit show. And I don't know what it's like to be innocent in a lineup, but I know what it's like to be guilty in one. And it is not fun. So walking out of there, my ego just <laughs> denial more than my ego because I didn't have anything really to back it. I had a. I, it, it was funny when cats brought down that piece of paper and I read it. And once I finally understood the gist of it, which basically said that it wasn't me that, that was picked in that lineup, I crumpled up the piece of paper and I threw it across the room and you should have seen it was the fastest I've ever seen this fat fuck move. Um, it, cause he had to go get it cause he needed it for the file or whatever. He's like, Hey, I need that. <laughs> get a copy. Um, so I left that courthouse that day and, you know, I started working again and it was, it was, I don't know, it felt like, you know, a couple of the 500 pound elephants in the room left and I could breathe a little bit. And, uh, I felt though, literally untouchable because I remember the next phone call that I get from attorney Katz. I remember being, I remember asking him specifically um, am I going to get probation? And he was like, uh, I don't know. I would say, well, geez, I passed the lineup. I did everything they told me to do. There's, you know, I'll probably get probation, right? Is there a possibility? He says, there's always a chance. And saying that now I hear the hopelessness in it. Back then I heard chance always, you know what I mean? I, the level of denial was unprecedented at that point in my life. And I'd been to AA, <laughs> The eradicators of denial and boom it was it was deep and it was thick and misty so the summer of discontent was was you know in some respects a lot of fun then um uh that phone call that i got from from attorney cats was to say they want another lineup and it, it didn't all come crashing down because you know the ego took a little bit of a hit and uh, deflated me a little bit, but I got this, man. I've already been in a lineup. I know exactly what to do. This was, uh, I got to tell you, this is the one, where, this is the lineup where I was not able to keep my cool the way that I was in the first one because of who it was. Now, Attorney Cats calls me, says they want to do another lineup for a robbery in Boston, they suspect. Which one is what I wanted to say? Because I, you know, there were a few. There were there were two failed attempted robberies, and the one that we thought about doing the um, the jeweler's building. So this was um, 
this wasn't a good idea. This was tough because I couldn't nail down which one they were thinking um, we did because Nancy wasn't involved in it. Any of the Boston ones. Ernestine wasn't involved in any of the Boston ones. Bill might have given, given up, but I'll tell you, in as much as Sprinkle wanted me to believe that Bill was singing like a motherfucker, he wasn't. And even if he was, um, it would only have killed him. I mean, he would have had to get complete immunity, and that's super difficult to get, ladies and gentlemen. They don't tend to give you, a, you know, immunity where you just walk unscathed away from the situation and don't do a lick of time. Bill did, I think, uh, 18 months, but it was upstate. So when I get to the, you know, understanding how the sentences work and how they grandfather in good time for certain people and stuff like that, it's... You're going to have to have a pen and a calculator ready if you want to be able to follow it or be able to regurgitate it at any other point in time because it's confusing. So, I didn't know which one of the potential Boston robberies and neither my father nor my brother's charges included this robbery. So, they were fishing and they had somebody that apparently could point out who was who partook in that or the planning of it? So th this is a huge question mark. Who the fuck is this? It might not even it might not have even been a robbery we did, because like I said, they will start the the cavalcade of hey, uh, put in the computer robberies like this, you know, similar uh, criteria, similar characteristics, and boom, out comes out comes <laughs> out comes the Sobolewski gang. Night before I gotta go down and do this lineup. I'm at my grandmother's house, and the phone rings, and it's Cheryl. You all remember Cheryl. <laughs> you know, Cheryl and I were never, ever in a committed anything. There was, when I was working third shift before I got arrested, she asked me to come to a dinner party before I went to my shift at Brookside. I'm like, you know, that's usually the time that I'm sleeping. I used to go home from third shift and sleep. And you got, you third shifters know this. The sleep that you get, if you went right home at 7 a.m. and slept till 3, that's eight hours of sleep. It's not sleep. You don't wake up refreshed from that. So most third shifters, at least I was, I could sleep 18 hours or 12 hours in between shifts easily. And still be tired. It And, and studies done on third shift workers, you know, not good. They die soon <laughs> of terrible things. So, you know, we, we definitely have a rhythm, a circadian rhythm that we need to follow because it's, uh, but, you know, third shifters, they're, they're a rare breed, and I was. And I wanted to sleep right up until the point that uh, I had to go into work. And that was the first time that there was um, tension between us, other than the first time when we had sex and she wanted to cuddle and I got up to pee and she was mad. She's mad. <laughs> like somehow I interrupted the post-orgasm snuggle time. Whoops. But that was it, man. She was very easy to be with. She was a woman. She was very adult. And um, it was great until she called me that night. And I, she didn't know my grandma. I don't know how she found my grandmother's number. I don't, I don't remember asking because the phone call, phone conversation did not go well right from the get-go. She's like, hey, how you doing? And I said, uh... You know, things are kind of tough right now, but I'm working. And she says, um, my needs aren't being met. <laughs> I was like, what? What? 
She says, my needs aren't being met. I just, I just wanted to let you know that I have needs and right now they're not being met. And I was like, oh, all right. Uh, well, as soon as I'm done facing, you know, double digit years for, you know, <laughs> Robin jewelry stores, I'll pop on over and fulfill your needs, lady. Um, no discredit to Cheryl. She was just trying to reach out and trying to tell her, tell me how she felt, which I should have taken as a compliment, but I freaked out. I was like, you know, listen, I'm, you know, I'm facing <laughs> some really serious stuff right here. So please excuse me if not running up there to, to, <laughs> to meet your needs. And it ended in, it, you know, we ended it. It was done at that point. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. And, um, Zena downstairs. I think her real name was Gina Zeros. I think that was her real name. She was the one that worked in the in the pool. She was an aqua trainer or a trainer or something like that in the area of Seaborn Hospital that had the pool and they had a gym. So she would come in during the second shift and uh, obviously she's Greek and she was very she was a little bit taller than me and she was the type of girl that I was like, there's no way in hell I can get that girl. And lo and behold, you know, we were flirting. I called her, she called back, and she found out that it was me that called her. And then we started talking and work a little bit. And isn't this a nice distraction for Brian before he goes away? <laughs> like, I, I, of all the faces that heard I was going away to prison, I wonder what hers looked like. She was probably like, what the f <laughs> Anyway, I am... Uh, on my way to the second lineup, same exact scenario, probably um, two or three of the same cops. And I was number three this time. So I walk into the jury box. I got my number. I'm number three and very, very nervous still, but uh, confident. It's amazing what, what um, past experience can do to your confidence. And I was ready. And Howard Weiss turns on the cameras. I see the red lights go on. I take a point on the wall. And I was going to look right through it the way my sensei in karate used to say. Pick a point on the wall and look right through it. That was the way he meditated. And um, the kid from the Boston box robbery comes walking in. Now, let me refresh your memory because I'm sure, uh, and by all means, go and listen to that episode again in season one because that was a robbery where I followed the kid. I was behind him. I flanked him from behind while dad walked up the street. This was the robbery that we tried without Kev. Dad punched this kid in the face. The kid dropped all of his boxes and I helped him pick the fucking things up. This kid and I made direct eye contact. That I was so even if he was like, um, yeah, no, number three wasn't part of the robbery. He helped me pick up the boxes. He puts me in that time and place, and yeah, absolutely, I'm done. So, so I'm like, holy shit, kid, don't say anything. That I think that was the look on my face as he was like walking by me. I was like, oh shit, and he looked right at me. I swear to God, he looked right at me, and I'm freaked out, man. Like this. <laughs> Of all the snapshots in his mind of that night, you know, mine has to be one of them. You know, facing my dad, trying to punch him, boom, boom, boom. That's the bad part. And, oh, look, this this wonderful pedestrian walking by is helping me pick up boxes. And here he is standing in a lineup, number three. I was, I was, wow. I mean, all of the confidence that I had going in 
turned that number three I was holding into a five real quick. Because it was, wow. So he goes out there, don't take a second walk through. So I think I'm done. I, you know, I thought, as much as I thought the second walk through of Maurice, you know, was the nail in the coffin, it wasn't. He had to come through again. Howard, he was scared to death. Maurice was scared to death to walk in that courtroom anyway. The way that they did it, I mean, you prefer to have one-way glass, right? I would if I were picking somebody out in the lineup, but he's putting right in front of the potential people that, that you know, stuck a gun in your face and said they would kill you. Him coming through twice was at the behest of Howard Weiss, who was trying this. He wanted to he wanted to nail me for this one. And kudos to him. I hope he's retired somewhere living on an island. Again, if this ever is turned into anything like, like a Netflix series, I hope they dig him up. Meaning, I hope they find him and, and interview him about this whole thing. And, and I hope they, they pull up all of everything that I'm telling you. So, so I don't know. It, it will be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of fun for me to watch. I don't know if it would be fun for other people to watch. Same deal. I am told to go down to the cafeteria. I head down to the cafeteria. And uh, this is just another excruciating waiting game. Weiss comes down again. I just want to I want to choke the words out of his throat because he's just so slow and lumbering, reaching for the piece of paper that he hands in front of me. And God damn it, it says the same exact thing. He didn't pick number six. He didn't pick anybody. The kid didn't want to be there. The kid was uh, cajoled into being there. Uh, Howard told me the kid was super, super combative. He's like, no, I'm out of here. I don't, I'm not going through again. You guys can go fuck yourselves. Talk to my lawyer. See ya. You know, he said I would go through once and that's it. And I don't know what he saw. I don't know if he recognized me. I have no idea. So, there's two. There's two situations that I have managed to wiggle my way out of that, um, wow. So, you can see that there is a uh, very fast-moving train that is being fed coal and is steaming down the line with my denial. And there is another train that is taking the uh, slower, safer route uh, straight to reality and straight behind the wall. So I continue my summer. I continue my working. I continue, uh, you know, just trying my best to keep one foot in, in one life and one foot, uh, you know, looking towards the abyss. But shit if I tell you that every single time there is a lawyer uh, call I am saying so again you know what do you think the chances are and Katz finally gets to the point he gets so sick of me asking what the chances of me just getting probation are that he says you know when this is before this is done with before we come to any agreement about what's going to happen here you have to do a probation report and the probation report will is a questionnaire, and we'll talk about that and what it was. And at the end of the probation report, the probation officer recommends a sentence. Not the probation officer, the prosecution. So it was done by the same guy that told me I had to call every day doing bail. And it's basically just a questionnaire of, do you use any drugs? Do you, do you drink alcohol? Uh, are you in a stable relationship? Do you have steady employment? Like, and, the, you know, more nuanced questions than that. But I'm sort of giving you an idea of what he, what he was asking. But it wasn't just a questionnaire of yes or no and how many and, you know, explain please. It was a, accu accusatory. 
So he sat there and just basically every question used as a way to accuse me of, hey, you're using drugs, right? Come on. Come on. You smoke a joint, man. Like, he couldn't, he was baiting me like crazy to try to get a little piece of information that could, he, and I, I'll bet you he turned around and say, said, you know, dude's probably lying. You know, he just couldn't believe that I wasn't, you know, a dirtbag substance abuser. And I can imagine the people that he probably sits in front of. I mean, imagine somebody that's, you know, charged with rape sitting in front of you and you're doing a, a probation report and, and the probation. Uh, prosecution is going to use that to recommend your sentence, sentence recommendation. So uh, the prosecution is going to recommend a sentence and the judge is going to have to look at that and say, all right, yes, or, you know, no, let me listen to the defense and the defense puts his, his forward. Let me tell you what my genius lawyer's defense plan was. This is, these are words that came out of a man's mouth that I was paying upwards of $500 an hour. And you're talking about the phone calls that he would call me and spend four minutes just, you know, easing my pain that maybe I'll get probation. He rounded up to a half hour and charges like 250 bucks for that. Insane. Insane amount of money. His, his idea or his defense strategy was to do nothing. I was like, what? This is like the Seinfeld criminal defense. He said, when I go in with your brother's lawyer, when I go in there with Chapman, and I go in there with your dad's lawyer, and dad ended up, uh, you know, dad hadn't come down yet, but um, we already had a lawyer in place for him. Tall, tall, lanky guy, really, really skinny. He looked like a bendy straw. When I sit down with those guys, says Mr. Katz, I'm going to pretend like I have no idea what I'm doing there. And I'm like, wow, there's a stretch for you. Woo, you're going to have to sit up all night in front of the mirror to try to master that face. Seriously, I'm like, what? Wait, you're going to go in and pretend like you, you don't know what you're doing there? Yeah, I'm going to pretend like there's, uh, like I'm in the wrong room. That like that was going to be his attitude. Like, there's no reason for us to be sitting here and talking about Brian because Brian's just you know it's a nothing thing. You know, Kev's Kevin Dad sentences look so much bigger compared to mine that you know maybe we just take this little piece of dirt and we sweep it under the rug and that's his plan. And I got to tell you that the denial part of my brain was like yeehaw, yeah, buddy, <laughs> get those spurs on and kick that kick that horse, man. Let's go in and pretend. We don't know what we're doing there. So, it was uh, mid-August when I got a phone call from Attorney Katz. No idea how much he charged me for it, but this was the conversation. Yeah, Bri, at the next hearing, they are going to recommend a plea bargain, and I think we should take it. And boom. I mean... Period. At the end of that, I, I'm sorry. I don't understand why an exclamation point makes the end of a sentence sound so much. Uh, I don't know, harsher. But the period's worse. I think we should take it. Well, what is it going to be? You know, uh, it's. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what it's going to be yet. But uh, I think what we're looking at and what they have for evidence for the charges they have you on, I think it's a good idea that we don't take this to trial. Now, let me explain why. 
there are judges in that courthouse that are reputed to take those sentencing guidelines of three years to life, look out his window and count how many pigeons are out there. And that's, those are the numbers you're doing. What? I mean, <laughs> a guy sitting for 30 years on the bench, man, I would hope had a, had a more, I mean, use Skittles or something. Pigeons? I'm fucked. There's a lot of pigeons in Boston. Um, so, and there's a lot about, there's a lot to this that was, we got Judge Houston and Judge Houston was, I, I don't know, I, I had very few dealings with him because most of what you're doing this whole entire year is um, going back and forth with lawyers and the prosecution. Very rarely do you go in front of the judge unless you have to do something like reduce bail. So my bail reduction was done by Judge Houston after he saw all these letters. So here I am. I'm taking all this. I got these letters. Judge Houston reduced my bail. It wasn't $5 million anymore. Kev's and Dad still stayed at $5 million. They never got it. They never even tried to have it reduced. But I'm still riding high on the possibility that maybe, maybe I'm going home. But here's Kat saying, hey, I don't know what they're going to say, but I think we should take it. So oof, I don't know how to feel about that. You know what I mean? That that it, there there was a lot of ambiguity in that statement. I didn't know what side uh, I should lean on. Okay, and that that is where I am leaving this episode. One of my favorite absolute episodes so far because um, it, ever since I started this, I mean, the lineup stuff is just extraordinary. I don't know that a lot of people have had that experience, and I love telling it. I haven't been able to tell it on stage. I do have. Um, that's why I started writing down all the movies where the suspect was number five and was guilty because there are a lot of them. Trust me, next time you see a lineup in a movie, the guilty guy that they suspect is, is usually number five. Not always, but I'm going to tell you 80 to 90% of the ones that I have seen, and I am going to find that list. I have it somewhere in one of my... I have so many black and white booklets where I write down these episodes. But before I wrap up, I have a uh another comedy video that i dug up and not dug up it's just not part of any of the channels that i have set up on youtube so far so there is a family jewels podcast uh channel on youtube and you can go on there and and there's uh probably four three or four uh comedy vi comedy videos on there and again i have 30 of them but so many of them are me practicing the same set that listening to them would be redundant. I try to put at the front or maybe try to do a different closer as I'm trying to add to this set. But for the most part, listening to 30 straight videos of me do the lookout joke is pretty rough. That being said, there is, uh, the lookout joke is in this set, but this is the first set that I have ever done at the comedy studio and it may as well be the first set I've ever done in comedy because I took a stand-up comedy class in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts or was it Somerville or Cambridge officially I don't know but there was an improv um, Boston in Cambridge and um, I took a class there my my ex-wife bought me a, a gift certificate to take a class and it was like an eight-week course and I don't think there was a show at the end. So some of them do a show at the end if they have the availability. And they did, but they didn't do a show. And uh, they, the instructor there just encouraged you to go to open mics. The first open mic that I went to was The Gaff. 
the gaff. It was in Waltham, Massachusetts. And it was a tiny little Irish bar with uh, a couple of two-by-fours slung together for a stage and painted black, and they threw a, a mic on top of it. And I show up, I put myself on the list. I think I was third or fourth on the list. First time ever getting up, and you're in a crowded bar, and I'm watching the first three people um, not bomb. I never want to say that anybody bombs, but again, you're in a bar and nobody's paying attention. They call me up, and I step on stage, and I don't know, it was, the material that I worked on the entire time in class What wasn't what I stood on that stage and did. It was one of those, hey, I'm getting up tonight at this open mic. I had a, I was working at Equinox. I had a couple of, um, a couple of hours between clients. And I just sat down, looked out to downtown Boston and just started writing jokes about my life. And that's where the lookout joke came from. You're going to hear that lookout joke every single uh, joke you hear in this set was something that I wrote a couple hours before and um, a couple hours before getting up at the gaff. It was untested material. I wish I had a recording of that because I think I told a joke where I said I'm really insecure and it rains because I don't know a masculine way to jump over a puddle. Like that was a joke that I wrote in class. And then I did a little act out and you know, you could easily say that's uh, reminiscent of George Costanza. Like that's a George Costanza joke from Seinfeld. He got beat up for the way that he jumped over a puddle. I don't know, you know. So this set is important to me um, and it's on um, it's on YouTube under Suba475, which is my email. And that's just Suba is my uh, was my nickname in high school because nobody could could pronounce my last name. So you're gonna hear the lookout joke again, but all the other jokes are um, are different. And uh, there's one joke in there that I've always loved that I rarely tell anymore that my ex-wife hated when I told. And I will tell you that was you know one of those jokes that were hit or miss, which is you wanna you don't want to have a lot of jokes in your set about that. You want to have jokes that you know across large audiences. So if I went to Nebraska right now, I would hope that my five minutes work there, which is why it's tough to to be a regional comic and write regionally. So this is uh, happy to share this with you, and it, there is new material in it, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope that you have enjoyed uh, most of this episode because this has been a really cool episode for me to to record because I'm, I'm prouder of this than I think most episodes. Uh, there was a lot of emotion in this and there was a lot of action and a lot of driving forward and uh, I'm happy to present it to you. So uh, enjoy this, enjoy the comedy studio and um, take care of yourselves and each other. Stay away from COVID and I will talk to you next week. Ladies and gentlemen. So um, I just I just want to get this right out of the way. Uh, vegetarians bugged me. Uh, seriously, if God didn't want us to eat cows, he wouldn't have made them so easy to catch. This is precisely why we don't eat cheetah. Squirrels. But I do have to tell you that if you're going to eat meat, I would recommend that it's uh, grass-fed beef.
because conventional meat is loaded with growth hormones, uh, steroids, antibiotic. It's really like eating a cast member of the Jersey Shore. And uh, when I was going to personal training school, one of the things that they told you to do is make your clients' goals uh, achievable and realistic. And once I started personal training, I realized why. Because all of my clients' goals are completely unrealistic. <laughs> Let me give you an example. The other day, a woman came up to me and she said, I just uh, entered the Boston Marathon. And uh, I don't want to win it. I just want to finish it. So I did a couple of fitness assessments on her, and I went over and I said, okay, well, let's take a look. You're 40% body fat. I asked her to do a push-up, and it looked more like a full-body heave. And when you ran 10 feet, you almost passed out. I don't think you can do the Boston Marathon. I don't think you can make it through a CSI marathon. So I'm a, I'm a personal trainer. Um, Mainly because they don't do uh, felony background checks. That's, that's not really a joke. Uh, I, I am a convicted felon, and um, I have kind of a unique story. Uh, my father and my brother and I used to rob jewelry stores all over New England. Uh, again, not a joke. One uh, A can Google it. Uh, and when you're planning an armed robbery, Every person involved gets uh, the job that is unique to their personal, you know, physical or mental attributes. So my dad was 6'4", 240 pounds, very, a uh, little mean looking, and uh, he had all the contacts in the jewelry industry and he planned our escape route, so he was the mastermind. My brother was 250 pounds, uh, so he was the muscle, okay? I'm 150 pounds. I was the lookup. Because apparently I have eyes. Look out. Um, for one of the jobs, though, I got the special, unique task of duct taping our victim to a chair. And I was very nervous about this job because nowhere on the roll of duct tape are there instructions on how much tape it takes to subdue a human being to a chair. And um, I think there should be. And not because I'm going to duct tape somebody to a chair again, but because I really think that you can judge any other duct taping job by how many strips of duct tape they say should you need to subdue somebody. So if you're looking to just hold a bunch of wires together and it takes 32 strips of duct tape to hold a human being to a chair, you can pretty much judge what's going to take to hold the wires together. So I was doing this particular job and I was very nervous about it. I didn't know how much duct tape to use, so I was over duct taping this person to a chair. And I, it was so bad that I got to the point where my dad had to tap me on the shoulder to get me to stop. It's the same tap that my wife gives me whenever I can't hit that spot. It's very, very embarrassing. So I really, I really would like to talk to Ben Affleck. Uh, anyone know? Uh, I saw the town, and when I see a movie like that, I, I have you know, a pretty unique perspective about it. You know, I've been involved in that kind of thing, and uh, the only problem that I have with the town was the interrogation part. Okay, so you, the cops get you in that little room, 
And of course, Ben was badass. Ben's like, you cops. And uh, no, that's not at all what happens in the interrogation room. Let me tell you what happens in the interrogation room because I've been there. What they do in the interrogation room is they don't even mention the crime that they suspect you of in the interrogation room. Basically what they do is they throw every crime ever committed at you and accuse you of it. So in the first 30 minutes of the interrogation room, I admitted to the Lincoln and the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> I was not doing good. And um, I ended up being sent to prison, and I uh, was sentenced to three years. And I think that it's a very sobering thing to sort of realize and, and to come to terms with. And uh, I don't think that my brain uh, realized what was happening. I think my body did. So it was in the transport van that I heard my asshole slam shut. <laughs> I was a little concerned about that. And the first thing that happens when you get to prison is they take you out of the transport van and uh, they bring you into a little room inside the prison and they strip search you. And I wasn't freaked out about that at all. Um, I kind of expected it. What I didn't expect was the final part of the strip search where they ask you to turn around, bend, and spread. Uh, apparently, some of the inmates tried to smuggle drugs into the prison that way. And uh, I, I love drugs. Never enough to achieve that level of intimacy with them. Uh, so, I got a test for you if you want to figure out whether or not um, you can do what they say, you know, you can't, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. So there's a, there's a little test, pretty simple. What I want you to do is go home and I want you to take a toothpick, I want you to take a pencil, I want you to take a hammer. I want you to take the toothpick and I want to put it right in your ass. If you don't like it, don't commit any crimes. If you can get the pencil in there, you could do a couple of misdemeanors. You could write a bad check, maybe shoplift the little bit. If you can get the non-working end of the hammer in, you're a felon. You can murder, you can do whatever you want to do. If you can get the working end of the hammer in your ass, you're Charlie fucking Manson. Kill everybody. That's my time. Thank you so much.